It was just outstanding. I would say I was, it was fantastic. Uh, Terry, uh, I, I think he's about 70 now, um, but he's like, um, he's, like a, he's like a wine that just matures with age, just get, seems to get better and better and better. I've heard people preach on uh, Ephesians 6 so many times, but I just thought he was really excellent. And uh, if you can uh, get onto the New Frontiers website in the coming uh, weeks, uh, and download Terry's talks, you will be really blessed. All the other preachers that I heard were excellent as well, but Terry, for me, was just outstanding. It was a really great time. One of the, uh, the sad bits of news was that, um, I don't know, this will probably be uh, just a name to some of you, but one of the guys who's one of the leaders in New Frontiers in Africa, uh, and is based in Johannesburg, uh, PJ Smythe, and uh, he's probably in his 30s, uh, got a young family, two young boys, and uh, he was supposed to be preaching at the conference, but was, uh, uh, just before he came, they found uh, that one of his lymph glands was enlarged, and whilst we were in the conference, they did a, a biopsy, and they basically found that he's got lymphoma, and um, so he's going to be undergoing chemotherapy. So it's a real big shock, and so what I'd like us to do, actually, is to pray for him right now. And uh, you can stay sitting or you can stand, um, but we're going to pray. And if uh, you yourself, um, you need a touch from God, need healing from God, then uh, if you want to put your hand in the air and then people around you, um, uh, I'd just like to lay hands on them and pray. And we're going to pray that God would touch PJ and anyone here this morning who needs healing from God, that God will come. Jesus is alive. God heals today, we believe it. And so we're always delighted to be able to pray for the sick. And so, so if you want to stand, sit down, whatever you want to do. But if you need a touch from God yourself, then you put your hand in the air right now. And uh, I'm going to lead us in praying. And those around you, uh, if you've got your hand in the air, those around you will lay hands on you. Father, we come to one who doesn't change. We come to a God who is forever the same. We come to one who has dealt with our sin and the consequences of sin through his son Jesus when Jesus died on the cross when Jesus rose from the dead hallelujah father you're the one who sent your spirit into the earth and that we are now people filled with the spirit your spirit is here amongst us and so father as we come to one the God who heals you're the one who says I'm the Lord who heals you Lord we stand on your word on your promise we say you don't change. And so, Father, we ask right now, we ask for PJ, smile Lord God, we ask for him in Johannesburg as he's about to start chemotherapy. We pray for a miracle of God to touch his body. We pray, Father, that his lymph, uh, Lord God, would be clear of cancer, that you would heal him and that this young man might have many more years to enjoy his wife and his family and life here and to serve you. We pray, Lord God, for a miracle. We ask you together as the people of God in Winchester this morning, come and heal him, we pray. Father, we ask as well for ourselves, for any here this morning who need a touch from you, we ask, oh God, that you would heal the sick amongst us. Father God, we pray, Lord God, that any who need a touch from you, Father, we pray for Bethany with this tinnitus, Lord, remove it in Jesus' name. Father, we pray for Ray, Lord God. We pray that this tumour in his brain, Lord God, would shrivel up and die. 
Lord God, we ask you to touch every sick person. Father, right now, by your Spirit, come and heal them. In Jesus' name, we say, sickness, be gone. In Jesus' name. Sickness, be gone. Dave Locke here, we say to that migraine, in Jesus' name, be gone. Heal the sick amongst us this morning. Demonstrate your mighty right arm in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's take our seats. We come now this morning to our uh, fourth out of five in our series on Jonah. And uh, we're going to, it's entitled The Power of the Gospel. The power of the gospel. And as we read this chapter together, you, will, you won't be able to help but be struck by the power of the gospel. The gospel is God's truth, God's word, that God loves men and women, that God, even though he hates sin, hates our rebellion, hates our living by ourselves, that God loves people. And the power of the gospel comes in and turns hearts around. So we're going to turn to Jonah chapter 3. And uh, the words will come up behind me, so if you have your Bible and you want to follow, it's Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to read the first ten verses. But if you don't want to, you can follow on the screen behind. This is what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. I don't know about you, but when you... uh, Have you ever been let down by someone... Uh, a church leader or someone uh, you trusted in the church. Uh, Some years ago, I've got a couple of members in my family, and one of them, one of my aunties, had been going to church. She'd uh, become a Christian. She was a young Christian. And the guy who was leading the church, she really looked up to him. And, um, uh, And then suddenly, one day, she found out that he'd been having an affair uh, with the organist in the church and it really shook her and she stopped going to church for a long time she was almost crushed by the disappointment of uh, how this guy had behaved and uh, uh, then there's another member of my family who had 
uh, was just showing a real interest in the Christian faith and he'd got to know a local vicar and the vicar went off and had an affair with someone. And uh, he was so fed up, he was so shocked at what he felt was the hypocrisy of it that he stopped going to church and uh, even today doesn't go to church. You see, there are many people who've been let down by the messenger so much so that it's put them off from the message. Society around us is full of people who think that the church isn't for them because it's full of hypocrites. Anyone who reads Jonah can't help but be disappointed with the man himself. He was a nationally famous prophet. And yet when God tells him to go and preach to the city of Nineveh, he runs in the opposite direction. Yet one of the reasons why God wants uh, this book in the Bible is because sadly, Jonah is too like us for our own comfort. Which one of us can say that we haven't been Jonah-like with God at some point or other? Now this morning we come to the central point in this book. Jonah who's been rebellious and recalcitrant at last has turned back to God. God has been merciful and saved him from certain death, albeit by strange means. He's uh, saved him in the, the belly of a great fish. Jonah has been taught a painful lesson. Yet once again, in the first verse of this chapter, we see God's great heart for the city of Nineveh. God is determined that they should know, the people of Nineveh should know, that he is God. Clearly, Jonah is an untrustworthy messenger. So surely now it's time to draft in the A-team and send the A-team off to Nineveh because Jonah really isn't the man for the task. That's what we would expect. That's what we would do. Certainly, that's what I would do. And yet, nothing could be further from God's mind. He is determined to use Jonah just as he's determined to use you. Why on earth would he do this? Why on earth would he use people like us who so frequently fail and let him down? Paul, in trying to comprehend the ways of God, comes worshipfully to the following conclusion. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. God is so amazing. Why he chooses to use us is a mystery. But he does. The riches of God. As someone has said, he is the God of the second chance. Throughout the Bible we see evidence of it. We see a man called Abraham. trying. Uh, God has promised him a son. And uh, he's married to Sarah. Sarah's his wife. Both of them are old. And uh, he thinks it's impossible, so he tries to work out how he can have this son his own way. And he, he uh, it takes uh, Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, as his wife, as his, uh, as his concubine, and has a son by her. And he thinks he's working out God's pur- God promise for him. And God says, no, that's not the way you should go. And it leads to a great disaster. We see Moses, perhaps great man of God in the Old Testament, in his early years, perhaps sensing the call of God to lead the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, 
and uh, he senses he's the right man and he tries to do it in his own strength and he, he murders someone and has to run and flee for his life and he spends 40 years in the wilderness, totally blows it. And yet later God comes and uses him just as he comes and gives Abraham the son from his own flesh, from Sarah's body that he promised. God is the God of the second chance. We read about it right through the New Testament to Peter's betrayal of Jesus. Peter who says, I'll never let you down, Jesus. And then at the first hurdle, when someone challenges, he says, you were, you're with, you were with that Jesus. He says, no, and he calls down curses on himself, denies Jesus. At the first opportunity, he blows it. You think, oh, Peter's written off. God's finished with him. And yet you read in uh, the end of John how Jesus restores John and you, uh, Peter and uses him wonderfully in the coming days, months and years. God is the God of the second chance. We see the evidence of the grace of God to Jonah. God gives second chances where we wouldn't bother. You may feel this morning that you've messed up big time. There's no hope for you. Be assured, he is still the God of the second chance. Terry Virgo, in his book, God Knows You're Human, puts it like this. We may have written Jonah off. He may even have disqualified himself, but God did not abandon him. He brought his prophet right back into his original plans. God is going to work out his purposes for you. If you will just walk with him. You see, as we uh, look at the opening verses of this book, we see the parallel of this chapter. We see the parallel with the opening verses of the book. The first time God calls Jonah, and we see the second time he calls him in chapter 3. And there's a, uh, there's a parallel. It's virtually the same call, but there's a subtle change in the words. At the first, in the first chapter, in verse 2, it says this, that God says to Jonah, go to preach against Nineveh. That's what it says in verse 2. But in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. He says, go to proclaim to it. There's a subtle change. He's going to preach. At the beginning, he's going to preach against it. But in chapter 3, it's to proclaim to it. Much more positive. And that prepares us for about what we're about to see what's about to come in the rest of this chapter. You see, neither God's plans nor God's heart have changed. God doesn't change. In James chapter 1 verse 17 it tells us that God doesn't change like shifting shadows. God of himself says in Malachi, I the Lord don't change. We live in a world that's constantly changing. Where everything is changing around us. There doesn't seem to be anything that's solid ground. God says, I do not change. God's heart is always for men and women to come to him. Come to know him. And yet there's something that gets in the way of us knowing God. And the Bible calls it sin. It's a Bible word. You see, God isn't happy with the people of Nineveh. We read, didn't we, in... Uh, uh, earlier as we were looking at the book of Jonah that God says that their wickedness the people of Nineveh's wickedness had come up before him you see it wasn't that his, their bad behaviour had suddenly come to his attention it wasn't as if the angel Gabriel said hey God have you seen what's going on down there in Nineveh God knew 
God already knew that what was going on in, in, in Nineveh. He already knew about their wickedness. He already knew what they were like. And yet God was being patient. God was being patient, giving them the opportunity to turn from their ways. And this is what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says, our Lord's patience means salvation. God is patient with us and holds back from punishment because he wants us to come to know him. He wants us to be a saved. Peter also says that, uh, that God uh, wants everyone to come to know him. Everyone to come to know him. That's God's heart. You see how, unless these people of Nineveh respond to God, unless they respond, they're going to get their just desserts for all their wickedness, cruelty, pride and godliness. Unless they change, they're in trouble. You see, God's attitude towards the way we live hasn't changed. God hates sin. God hates our wrongdoing. God hates the things that we do. He hates us living without reference to him. That hasn't changed at all. Interestingly, the pressure not to speak about that doesn't come from the world outside. It comes from within the church. People within the church say, oh no, you shouldn't tell people that. They don't need to hear that. They just need to hear about the love of God. The Bible is absolutely clear. God hates sin. Hates it. He hates it, but he loves people. That's what the Bible tells us. We must never water down what God's word says just because we think people won't like it. And as we read this opening cha- uh, this, these opening verses of Jonah chapter 3, we see that Jonah obeyed for the first time in the story, Jonah obeys God. It was over 500 miles to Nineveh. It was across desert routes. Probably it was a month's journey for him. To get there he would have had to cross over political, cultural, as well as religious boundaries. And if we're going to be people who bring the gospel, this wonderful good news that God loves men and women, to the people of our city, to the people of this area, of the communities that we live in, we're going to have to cross boundaries as well. Whether it be crossing the street, whether it be breaking through our own prejudices to talk to people we wouldn't naturally gravitate towards, or whether it's building a relationship with someone of a different cultural background. We're going to be people who have to cross boundaries. But whenever we do that, whenever we cross boundaries, you need to know that we are just copying the God who has gone before us. Because God himself has crossed boundaries. God himself sent his son Jesus from heaven to this earth, crossing boundaries to save people like us. This is what Rosemary Nixon says, Jesus crossed between heaven and earth to walk in our streets and our cities. He crossed the threshold between death and life to assure his people of his unfailing presence. He crossed the social, religious and political divides of his day so that all may be drawn to him. In Christ, the world sees a God who gets up and goes to meet his people. God is calling us to be people who get up and go. People who get up and go and cross boundaries. I want us to consider this morning three things from this passage which I I believe are going to encourage us 
to believe for the power of the gospel to work in our city, to work in our community, in our workplace. And the first thing I want us to see is this. I want us to see Jonah's great responsibility. Jonah's great responsibility. Jonah was given a great responsibility. He was given a great task. Some years ago when I was uh, in school and I was part of what was called a group of Christian students who used to meet together, it's called the Christian Union, and um, I I belonged to quite a a sort of fairly middle class comprehensive school in Swansea, and um, that's where I went, and uh, uh, in the Christian Union, the person running the Christian Union said, we've been asked by the Christian Union of the Munith Bach School, now Munith Bach was a girls' school in North Swansea, and uh, uh, Manithaf was in a really tough part of Swansea, a really tough area, and so the boys and girls' school weren't together, they were separate, Manithaf was the girls' school, and she said, uh, we've been asked to go and take their Christian Union meeting, so uh, uh, there was about six of us, I think, went uh, with the teacher, and uh, uh, we were a bit nervous going into uh, this girls' school, going to never done anything quite like that before, first time we ever did it. And uh, so it felt like huge responsibility for us, you know, uh, really quite nervous. And so when we got there, we were absolutely horrified to see there were, the room we were in was upstairs and there were girls lining the stairways all the way up. And uh, all you could hear was this, bring them in, bring them in. Bring them in. I mean, it was like that. All these girls, they were, I mean, what had happened? The girls running the Christian Union said, hey, we've got guys. We've got guys coming to do... Uh, why don't you come to the meeting? So basically, what they'd done is they'd just gone around the whole school, and the whole school, it felt like the whole school were there, banging desks, banging the wall, lining the stairways up. It felt like going in a cattle, it felt like a cattle market. It was the most terrifying, nerve-wracking experience. And we all stood at the front, hiding behind one another like this, where all these girls were staring at us. It was really terrifying. It was just, it was just one, of the, one of those moments in your, uh, as, a young, as a young bloke, it put me off girls all for about three weeks. Jonah was given a great task. His task was daunting. Nineveh was a huge city. It was a city of, uh, uh, of Israel's enemies. Commentators have reckoned that uh, Greater Nineveh covered an area of around uh, 60 miles in circumference. It was a huge city. Jonah's three-day journey would have amounted to about 50 miles. He probably would have had to cover 50 miles. We know there were 120,000 people living in Nineveh. Jonah was potentially the only person they might ever hear bringing the gospel to them. What a responsibility. What a daunting task. We have no idea whether Jonah was terrified or not. The text doesn't tell us. We only read that Jonah went. You know, we have a huge task. Jesus has given us a huge task. The Great Commission, go into all the nation, go into all the world, go into uh, all the community around you and tell people that Jesus loves them, Jesus died for them, that God has given us sacrifice so that their wrongdoing might be paid for. 
We have a great responsibility. You may be the only, you may be just the person that your neighbour, your work colleague needs to hear from. You may be Jonah for them. You may be just the person that needs to speak to them. You see, this city is full of people who don't know the first thing about God. And we're to be the ones who need to help them fill in the blanks by the way we live, the way we speak, and the way we act. We have a huge task. So what did Jonah do? Well, the thing he did was he started where he was at. He started where he was. He just, he didn't walk to, he didn't find a platform, he didn't go and find the city hall. He just started speaking. As soon as he got into Nineveh, he's just started telling them. You see, that's what we need to do. You don't need to get all your ducks in a row before you go and talk to them. You just need to get out there and befriend that person who sits opposite you in the work office. You just need to get to talk to them. You just need to get to know your neighbours. You just need to befriend them and love them. And wait for God and look for God to open a door of opportunity opportunity for you. You need to start by loving and caring for your neighbours, work colleagues, the people you mix with, your classmates, the people you work with, your customers. You don't need to look any further than where you are at this moment in time. The danger is we're always looking for the perfect opportunity. And so we get so focused on that, we just miss the person on the other side of the room who needed us to go and talk to them. Jonah started where he was. He also proclaims what God told him to say. I mean, this is really important. We live in days where we feel under pressure to convince what, uh, people of what we're saying is rational. The pressure to be relevant today is huge. You see, Jonah wasn't primarily sent to start a conversation or a dialogue. He was sent to proclaim God's word. There are a lot of helpful things being said today about us being culturally relevant. And that is absolutely true. It's really helpful. We do need to be culturally relevant. We need to understand the questions that people out there are asking so that we can answer them. We don't want to be answering questions that they're not asking. We need to be culturally relevant. You know, that's why we're doing a summer series on if you could ask ask God one question. If you could ask God one question. The reason we're doing that is because uh, that's what you are telling us that those are the questions you're being asked. Those are the questions that people out there are asking you. We want to be relevant, we want to be culturally relevant, but we're not in a dialogue. You know, we do, uh, we run uh, the Alpha course, and uh, we, uh, we're constantly wanting to uh, engage people and get people to ask questions, but ultimately, we are proclaiming the truth. We are proclaiming God's word, that's what we're doing. Ultimately, Alpha is an opportunity for people to come and ask questions, but ultimately we are presenting them with the truth, with what God says, with what God's word says. You remember when Paul uh, comes to uh, Athens, he comes to Mars Hill, and he comes to uh, the great Greek philosophers of the day. But Paul doesn't try to convince them what he's saying is philosophically sound. Instead, this is what he says. He says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Jonah proclaimed the truth. And as we do that, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit's power to convince people, to convict people of sin, of, that they need God. It's not about us convincing them by the power of our arguments. So, we need to know that. We need to know the power of God to help us. We need to proclaim the truth. We also see that Jonah's message was unpalatable. I mean, Jonah proclaims what God has told him to say. This is the message I give you, Jonah. Go and speak that out. I mean, humanly speaking, it is such an unpopular message. I mean, it's, it's about as unwelcome as me, a Southampton supporter, Saints fan, going down to Fratton Park on the Fratton end and uh, standing amongst all the Portsmouth fans and starting singing, you're going down. I mean, it's, about, it's as unpopular as that. I mean, how long do you think I would last? About, probably about 30 seconds. About 30 seconds. Jonah was doing something. His message was unpalatable. You know, Jonah was a foreshadowing of Jesus coming into this sin-sick world. When Jesus came into this world, the the Jews were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a deliverer that was going to deliver them from Roman oppression. That's what they were looking for. Jesus came. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the deliverer. He was the one that was coming to set people free. But not from Roman oppression, but from their wrongdoings, from their sin, the, the things that keep them from a relationship with God. But Jesus' message was unpalatable. And they hated him for it. They hated the fact that he challenged them about the way they were living. And so they put him to death. They had Jesus put to death. You see, the message that we take to the community around us, to this city, people will not like, it won't be universally received. People won't go, oh wow, why didn't it? The city's not going to turn around at the first thing we say. People hate this message. They hate the challenge of the way they're living, their own uh, wrongdoing their own wrong relationship to God, that there is a God that they need to relate to. It's not about themselves. People hate that. And so there will be opposition. And you need to know that. Because there's something inside us that makes us, we all desperately want to be liked. We want people to like us, don't we? We hate being hated. I mean, I I remember going on holiday and getting to the bar. uh, I just got off the plane and it was hot and it was, temperature was hot and it was, you just got to the bar and... I just, I just wanted a drink and there was a guy standing at the bar, being on the same plane as me, just started chatting to him, started engaging with him. I said, oh, what do you do? He said, oh, I work on a building site. I said, oh, great. He said, what do you do? He said, oh, I said, I work in a church, I'm a minister. He said, oh, right, okay. And then he turned his back and then he went and he didn't speak to me for the rest of the holiday. Not interested. Church, not interested in what you... Don't, don't want to be close to you, don't want to spend any time with you, you are going to be so boring. Don't want to spend... And there's something inside us that wants people to like us, doesn't it? Wants to sort of compromise. So people kind of, Jonah's message was a hard-hitting message. We need to be people who challenge the accepted norms of society by the way we relate to other people, by the way we spend our money, 
by the way we bring up our children, by the way that we do our jobs. We are to be people who make a difference, who stand out in these days. We have a great responsibility. Secondly, we see in the Ninevites a genuine repentance. Jonah had a great responsibility, but we see with the Ninevites genuine repentance. I remember being on holiday in Crete once and... um, uh, I didn't have. A, I was looking for a watch. Needed a watch. There were loads of shops selling watches. Went into one. Looked a really, uh, looked a really quite a nice shop, and the exchange rate was good. So I went in, and there was this Adidas sports watch, and I thought I quite like that. And it was, you know, it's a good price, uh, uh, cheaper than you get back in the UK. And I said, is this a genuine Adidas watch? The guy went, yes, yes, my friend, yes, it is. And so I bought the watch. Went home. About, about three or four weeks later, all the what looked with metallic paint started peeling off. And it just, you know, it just wasn't a genuine Adidas watch at all. In fact, um, to be honest, I'm hopeless at those things. Annette doesn't like me answering the door when people come selling because I'm the person who tends to buy things. In fact, friends of ours some years ago, they uh, lived on the same estate as us. They said, um, uh, yeah, we won't buy anything, but if you go to that house over there, he'll buy something for me. And the sad thing was I did. The sad thing was I did. I, you know, and the, the issue was, I couldn't spot what was genuine and what wasn't genuine. How can we know what's genuine? How can we know whether people's response to God is genuine? You see, the Bible tells us we need to be looking for the fruit of this faith, or as John the Baptist says, fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what he says in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. In the case of the people of Nineveh, Jesus himself says that they were genuine in Matthew chapter 12. They were genuine. They meant what they said. On hearing Jonah say, you're in trouble, they said, wow, okay, what do we need to do? They immediately responded. We don't know what Jonah said. We don't know what he proclaimed. I think we can safely assume he talked about his deliverance from the fish's belly. Uh, His skin and his hair may even have been bleached white by the gastric juices of the fish's stomach. I mean, he himself may have been a sign and wonder. They may have looked at him and thought, oh boy, what you're saying must be true. Look at the state of you. What you're saying must be true. And the Ninevites are given 40 days. 40 days in the Bible is often symbolic of, of, of an encounter with God. And in these 40 days, these Ninevites met God. They turned to God. They made a definite decision to turn away from a lifestyle dominated by what the Bible calls sin and to turn to God. They turned to him. Acts chapter 3 verse 19 says this, Repent and turn to God that your sins may be wiped out. I remember when in my 20s I backslidden through my late teens and I remember turning back to God, God encountering me. I, I tell you, for two years whenever I prayed I wept. I wept at God's goodness to me that he could forgive me of the things that I'd done. Every time I prayed, every time I worshipped, I couldn't stop weeping because I was so grateful to God. God had set me free, had forgiven me. I couldn't believe it. I was so amazed. You see, genuine repentance is based on an appreciation of the nature of sin. You see, sin is what alienates us from God. The world around us tells us you're, tells you you're free to do what you like as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. The, what the Bible says cuts right across it. Cuts right across that way of thinking. 
When Jonah appears on the scene and starts to tell the Ninevites that God has had enough of their wickedness, he tells them that he's going to judge them and punish them. Suddenly the Ninevites come face to face with a God who is not indifferent to how they behave towards him, towards each other and the world at large. God is not indifferent about how you behave. Not indifferent about you think. And yet before these people, these Ninevites can genuinely repent and turn to God, the Ninevites need to understand about sin. The same is true today. We need to understand about sin. We're very good at challenging people to believe in God and believe in Jesus. But we're not very good about bringing people to an appreciation of what sin is. Very quickly, there are four aspects to sin. The first is godlessness. That's just living totally independent of God. Just living independently, giving no reference to God in your life at all. The Bible calls that godlessness. The Bible says it's sin. The second thing is unrighteousness. That's the sort of characterised by our attitudes and our actions that are evil, they're wicked, depraved. We do things that are just wrong and we know they're wrong. And you know when other people are doing things that are wrong. We read about this guy who was shot, shot himself the other day, having killed someone. You know that's wrong, you know that's wicked, you know that's uh, evil behaviour. The third thing is this is self-righteousness. This is one that gets us because we, we think, oh, I haven't done stuff like that. I give God the occasional thought. Actually, self-righteousness is a form of pride and that's characterised by the attitude that declares, I'm not such a bad person. I don't murder, I don't steal, I don't commit adultery. I help others when I can. Surely that's enough. Actually, God says that the very best things that we do, our kindest acts, are like filthy rags before him. Finally, self-centeredness. This is living to please ourselves. It's all about our own desires, our own ambitions, our own opinions. Little thought is given to others' needs or feelings. Far less about what God says is best. You know, it's like we are the centre of our own universe. We're the most important thing. Self-centeredness. The Bible says that these are sin, these things. God hates these, these things. And our lives are full of them. There isn't a person living in the world today who hasn't sinned before God. When the Ninevites received Jonah's message, they received it as if it were from God. And that's the turning point. The word that they, is used for believed is, is also used in Genesis chapter 15 when it says Abraham believed the Lord and it, he reckoned to him, it to him as righteousness. It's the same word. These Ninevites, they believed God. It wasn't a shallow turning. They believed God. They said, God, you are right. Your assessment of us is right. They believe what God said. Do you believe what God says about the way you live? See, they're convicted by the Spirit of God. They're not convicted by Jonah's compelling argument. In fact, to be honest, as you read, it's a pretty rubbish argument. He doesn't give much right, he just it's about eight words. That's all it is. That's all we read that he says. So it's not the compelling argument, it's the Spirit of God that works. And how do, they, 
How do they repent? How do they do it? We see a few things. We see, first of all, they recognise they recognise that they needed to turn from their sin. They recognise their sin. The people of Nineveh saw that they'd sinned against God. It was more than just a feeling of regret. Oh, I've been caught out. I've been found out. It was more than just a remorse. Oh, well, we did hurt those people when we took over that city. Oh, we we were a bit, oh, yeah, we shouldn't have done that. It's not remorse. The key issue was they realised they'd offended God. That's the essence of sin. Repentance is taking personal responsibility for our own sin and saying, God, I have offended you. I've offended you. It's taking personal responsibility. And as we do that, our conscience is awakened by God's Spirit and we start to feel what the Bible calls godly sorrow. This is what the Bible says about godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. Godly sorrow. It's God working on the inside. So the Ninevites recognised their sin. They recognised they'd offended God. And then they confessed. They confessed. They, by their words and their actions, they said... We recognise we've done this. You see what the the king of Nineveh did, how he made this proclamation. Our words confirm and reinforce what's happening in our lives. So the confession, what we say, is important. See, repentance is not about just feeling sorry for yourself, sorry that you've been caught out. It's recognising you've offended God and saying to God, I have offended you by doing this and that. It's being specific. And finally we see they acted. They did something about it. They demonstrated their repentance by giving up their evil ways and their violence. And that's often the most difficult part, but it is the most rewarding. Paul says in Acts chapter 26, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. They fasted, they put on sackcloth and ashes. They were all signs of their grief, humility and their penitence. They were humbling themselves. Their actions reflected the change of heart that had happened on the inside. How do we bring to conclusion our old way of life and embark on a new way of living? Well, we put away sources of temptation. They need to be put away from us. I had a friend who, uh, who was hooked on drugs. And in helping him and helping him turn away from that way of living, he had to... He had to change the SIM card on his phone, change the number to get rid of all the old numbers on his phone to stop him being able to phone up people for drugs and having people phone him up for drugs. He didn't want to do it. It took him two months to do that. Until he did that, he was never... It was, that was the sign of repentance, that he was genuinely repentant. Some of you maybe need to cut things off. Unrighteous activities need to be stopped. If you got involved in occult practices, then you need to stop doing it. If you're repentant, you will stop doing it. You need to extend forgiveness to those who have offended you and forgive them. You need to forgive them. You need to seek reconciliation. I remember people over the years who have have said, I love this stuff about Jesus, but I just can't forgive that person for what they did to me. 
And they couldn't receive the forgiveness of God because they just couldn't forgive and they walked away. Repentance is about forgiveness. Debts need to be repaid. Restitution needs to be made. And crimes need to be confessed to. You see, when we repent, it's a daily thing. It's a daily decision to live for Jesus. We see genuine repentance. Do you need to repent this morning? Do you need to turn to God? Finally, very quickly, and this is a very quick point. We see a great responsibility. We see genuine repentance. But finally, we see a grace response. You see, in this city of Nineveh, you see the best and the worst of humanity. Alongside the pinnacle of human achievement, you come across the worst cases of degradation and human exploitation. Jonah was sent into a violent, corrupt and immoral place like Nineveh, but had fantastic architecture, renowned as being a wonderful city to look come to. On the surface it looked lovely, yet under the surface there were terrible things going on. Winchester is no different. For all its nice streets, for all its little cobbled streets, for all its quaint little buildings, underneath, in the hearts of men and women, there are things going on that are wrong, that God hates. God hates. You see, God cares about this city. Not because of the architecture or the culture, but because of the people. God loves people. And the amazing thing is that as we see genuine repentance, there's always a grace response from heaven. Nineveh is an example of classic spiritual revival. Terry Virgo says this, what a glorious climax to an extraordinary story. Amazing. God is amazing. I remember some years ago being in a meeting. We'd been away to, I'd taken a group of young people away. It's in the period I'd just come back to God in my early 20s. And we'd taken a group of young people away from the church. And we'd taken them to uh, the Bible College of Wales. And they had sort of, you could, they had some dormitories there. And um, our young people, they were just so badly behaved. I mean, they were, told, it, I mean, they were, up, all, were up all night fighting and mucking about. And there was one moment, the worst bit of it was, some of the boys were, um, I'm going to have to, sorry, I'm going to have to going to shock some of you, they were mooning out of the windows, which means that they were showing their rear end. <laughs> and the really shocking thing was that there was one or two of the girls doing the same. And... The, the, the people who were running the college saw it, saw what was happening, and it was so close to the, uh, the youth group being sent home. It was an absolute disgrace. And the next morning we had a, had a I mean, meeting. How can you have a meeting when all that sort of stuff's going on? And we sort of came together and just didn't know, uh, to be honest, the leaders didn't know what to do. And um, I just remember getting up and reading from Isaiah chapter 6, and reading about the holiness of God and Isaiah encountering God and suddenly the spirit of God came and the whole 60 young people (coughs) weeping (coughs) weeping before God (coughs) just crying before him repenting of their sin 
repenting of the things that they've done, their attitudes of their behaviour. I mean, God just came, and there was just that youth group was transformed. In a moment, God came. In a moment, God came. God can still do the same today. You see, God sees. He sees genuine repentance. He's primarily interested in what goes on in the heart. He's interested in your heart. You see, your ways may seem right to yourself, but God weighs your heart. He's looking at what's happening inside your heart. Nobody else will know. You may have a good idea, but God does know for definite. God sees. He sees into your heart. How does that make you feel this morning? And yet God has compassion. I mean, he saw the response, the genuineness of their repentance, and he poured out his grace. Poured it out. He held back judgment. He poured out his grace. And I would say to you this morning, if you, need, if you know you need to get right with God, come and experience his grace this morning. God wants to pour out his grace upon you. He wants to extend compassion towards you. You see, God changed his mind. Quite literally, God, the Bible says, the word is repented. God quite literally repented. He relented of doing what he said he would do. God had a change of heart. This is what it says in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7 to 8. This is, I'm going to finish with this. Jeremiah says, If at any time I announce that a national kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I planned. I will relent. I just want to say this morning, we have a great responsibility as God's people here. We have a great responsibility. We're about a great work. We need to start where we're at. We need to proclaim the truth. But we need to expect opposition as we proclaim the gospel. But we need to expect genuine repentance. We need to expect people to genuinely repent, understand sin. We need to tell them, proclaim to them the truth. We need to expect them to repent. We need to recognise and to recognise that sin is against God. To confess their sin and to live a new way. And I want to say to you this morning, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you can do that today. You can repent this morning. You can get right with a God who loves you and cares about you. We need to be like that ourselves. When we do things wrong, we need to be quick to repent. Put things right with God. Change the way we're living. You see, where there is a heart change, there is always a grace response from heaven. There's always a grace response from heaven. I'm going to invite the musicians to come up now. And uh, we're going to, just as we finish our time together, we're going to break bread together and we're going to just spend a few moments over that. But this is an, an opportunity for you, an opportunity for you to get right with God.